the entire point of worship, the entire point really of our gathering, is to make much of Jesus Christ. It is not about us, it is about Him, who He is, what He is accomplishing, and we have certainly exulted in that through worship music this morning. Some of you, without any doubt, grew up as part of your worship service reciting what is sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. More appropriately, it should be called the Disciples' Prayer. It's a template for prayer that Jesus left us. And you remember a significant part of that prayer is to pray to the Father, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. The reality is, whether the prayers know it or not, every time those words have been spoken, it solicits the will of God finally expressed in the reign of Jesus Christ upon this earth. We anticipate that that one day will happen. We believe that that is real. In the Christmas season, we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. And yet, we reflect nearly every Christmas season that we look around and the world has rejected her King in so many ways. That's really not a Christmas song, by the way. It's a song that celebrates the coming kingdom of our Lord. And that kingdom will be a time, if you remember a few weeks ago, we used the phrase, this will be a regime change. Finally, something is changing. Finally, there will become a, a fullness of the promises of God, a, a final gathering together of all of God's goodness and promises to this world, and a final victory over what is evil. This is anticipated in Revelation chapter 11. You remember when we studied these verses? The 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. It hasn't yet happened, but one day it will. And everything in time, everything in what is history as we know it, and our lives right now, and all that is revealed in the book of Revelation, it all moves forward toward the consummation of all things, where Satan and sin and death are finally vanquished. More on that next Sunday, at the end of chapter 20. But what the initial part of chapter 20 reveals is this anticipated interim kingdom, it's a time between this present age and the eternal age. It's a time in which Jesus will not so much rule in infinity and in absolute perfection, but in a, an interim age of a long extended period, likely a thousand years, he will reign on earth with the effects of the curse mitigated. He will rule with a rod of iron. There will be a time of unprecedented peace, unprecedented prosperity, unprecedented joy upon the earth. He will show that he is king on the earth. This is a position that is called the premillennial position. Don't worry about that if you're not interested in technical terms. 
But this is what we find in the text. And there are promises here for us to both understand, for us to grasp, for us to internalize. And I think, I'll show you before we're through this morning, that it makes a difference in how we live right now. Even though we're not yet in this glorious interim age of Jesus' reign on earth in person, we know that He still reigns. And there are implications for us even today. So with all that by way of introduction, would you look at chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, and would you follow along this morning, verses 1 through 7. Our text today will be verses 4 through 6, but I just want to remind you of context. And for some of you who were not with us last Sunday, there is good news in nearly every word of this chapter. Verses 1 through 7 of Revelation 20. And as you find that, and as you follow along as I read, I remind you, as I always do, this is God's Word for us today. Revelation 20, verse 1. John says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. This is the interim kingdom age. This is when the anticipation of Jesus as king comes to full reality on earth. One great preacher, S. Lewis Johnson, says it this way, This is the great glorious age of the future to which the Word of God looks. Not the final of everything, but an interim age, yet a lengthy age in which our Lord is shown to be successful in the very place where He was crucified. And in the very place where Adam sinned and threw us into rebellion against the Lord God. Note the emphasis here. The point of the kingdom age, at least one significant point, is in this world which has been robbed, which has been the source of rebellion against the true king, that true king will reign in that same world. And this is the promise of the kingdom age. 
Now, we believe this because of several reasons. It's important for us to assert that this is our position, our way of understanding Scripture. First of all, because it's just the normal reading of the text. This is the flow and sequence. After all of these visions, after all of these judgments, after the wrath of God has come, there is the establishment of a kingdom. If you were going to read Revelation, you would understand that that's the normal progression of the sequence of the book. Secondly, this is the pattern of biblical prophecy. From everything in the Old Testament, even the passage from Isaiah 40 that we read this morning, from everything in the Old Testament, the promises to Israel, and Jesus' promises and anticipation about His kingdom, all of these things imply that there will finally come a time when His kingdom is established, and it's established in this world. And also, I just want to point out this morning, and I will not take long, so if you don't like history, just grit your teeth and hold on for a moment, all right? But this was also the position, nearly universally the position, of the early church. The apostles who had been taught by Jesus, their understanding in the first century, and then those that they taught, and those that then they taught, they believed that there would be this interim kingdom where Jesus would return, there would be a resurrection, and he would rule upon the earth. One of the great names from church history is Justin Martyr. And he was asked by a critic about this belief. Trypho, the critic, said, Do you really admit that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt? And do you expect your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, both the men of our nation and other proselytes who joined them before Jesus came? And here's what Justin replied. He acknowledged, by the way, let's full disclosure, he acknowledged that there are some who have drifted from that teaching. But then Justin Martyr said this, In the second century... In the second century, he said, I believe that such will take place. We are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be rebuilt, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets declare. So the early church believed what we're saying today. One factor that seems to have caused a turn away from this conviction, especially with Augustine, by the time the fourth century arrived, is there was attached to the idea of the kingdom some strange ideas of hedonism or sensuality. Because this was an earthly reign, there were people that then extrapolated out of that some strange sensual, maybe even sexual enjoyments that went really contrary to the early church's understanding of holiness and purity. And so that's one of the reasons, perhaps, that the church turned away from this position, which in much of its doctrine and teaching it did for several centuries. But listen, what we're suggesting here is that there are good biblical, really I would say clear reasons, to hold to the truth that Jesus is one day going to establish his kingdom again. Uh, one of Dave's seminary professors, Dr. Vlock, has written a, has compiled a wonderful chart, and I have copies available for you. I know this is unusual to say this in the middle of a sermon, but this is so important. These truths are so important, and it shows the foundations of our conviction that there will one day be a real, literal, millennial reign of Jesus on earth. And maybe this is a time to just make clear what we're saying, especially if you're a guest. We believe that the reign of Jesus on earth will be just as real as the administration of Gavin Newsom in the state of California. And I would just say it will be much, much, much better and more righteous. 
This is what we believe. This is not some fanciful, imaginative, symbolic anticipation. Someday this earth will be the kingdom of Jesus Christ with Him ruling on the throne in Jerusalem. That's, I know it's startling to get your mind around, but this is the implication of this teaching. And I know we have good friends that are in different camps who believe differently. We have good interpreters and faithful brothers and sisters who are amillennial or who are postmillennial who believe we're going to bring about the kingdom. But it's important for us, while we acknowledge that they are friends and they agree on the major issues, it's important for us to nevertheless be clear about what we believe. There are pastors with whom I can have coffee and fellowship, but they would never want to join our church because we disagree on some secondary issues that are secondary, but they're important. They're not meaningless. And so therefore, we take time to talk these things through and to stake them as our position. And it's important because we need to preserve precise teaching and doctrine for future generations, even in secondary matters. Now, let me tell you that all of those that we disagree with, they believe that Jesus is coming back. They believe that Jesus is the Savior. And so we agree with them on those issues. But there are places where we just say, here's where we disagree. I wonder if it's appropriate to suggest an analogy of the fact that we have Dodger fans and Astro fans in the same church. And though we disagree vehemently, we are nevertheless on the same page about the things that matter most. That might be a good metaphor. I won't flesh out the metaphor any more than that. Very quickly, if you follow along in your notes, I've summarized last Sunday's message because we're not really going to talk about the binding of Satan. We spent last Sunday talking about that. He is not now bound in the way described in Revelation 20. And by the way, it's not your job to bind Satan. Uh, Jesus does this, but he does it. The great angel does it at the beginning of chapter 20, and he doesn't participate. Satan is not active and by implication, his demonic forces, are not active during the kingdom age. And so one of the things this means is the end of demonic deception. Satan traffics in false doctrine. He traffics in lies. Demons traffic in the battle of the mind. And that will not be the case for a thousand years. Also, it will be the end of systemic rebellion, the theme of the Bible beginning in Genesis chapter 10 and going on through the rest of the Bible is the organized opposition to God with Babylon as a, as a symbol of that. And we've seen in Revelation that finally that the, the opposed rebellious opposition to the king of heaven is finally destroyed when Babylon is wiped clean and there will be no organized systemic rebellion against Jesus during the kingdom age, at least until the end when Satan is briefly released, and we'll cover that next Sunday. And third, there's also this wondrous and mysterious mitigation of the curse. And I have to confess to you that I've struggled with that this week, because the Bible is clear, this broken world won't look the way it does today, but it still won't be perfection the way it will be eternally. 
And so I've tried to figure out what's going on there. And I'm wondering, and here's where I drift into speculation, so some of you can just quit listening if that offends you, but I'm beginning to wonder if the fact that during the kingdom age, so much of the natural evil in the world, when I say natural evil, I'm talking about earthquakes, I'm talking about disease, I'm talking about all of these things. I wonder if it's possible, hold on to your seats, if it's possible that more of that is motivated by demonic influence than we realize. Because the demons are bound. And so suddenly, disease will not be what it was. The violence in the animal kingdom will not be what it was. The assumption of nearly all scholars is there won't be the natural disasters that we experience now. Now, the troubling thing about me raising that issue is I can't find anybody who agrees with me, all right? But I wonder if that's not the case. I'll keep working on that. One thing is clear. This world will not be as broken and painful as it is now. And to that we can all say amen. Now, if Satan doesn't participate, who does? Who reigns in the coming kingdom age? And it might come as a surprise that what we find is the the reality of who reigns in the kingdom age is the king. We say, well, sure. But also, his redeemed people reign. It is a shared reign. That's what we find. We'll see it in the text today. That the king reigns, but also his redeemed people. Now, turn your attention to the text. We're still in Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 20. And look in verse 4. Let me show you this. Then, John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, who are on these thrones? I won't take time to really walk through all of the options. Some think that that these are the armies from chapter 19. I find that difficult to believe. That means that there would be millions of thrones all over the millennial kingdom. That doesn't seem reasonable. Some believe these are the 24 elders that are in heaven because in heaven they're always on thrones. Uh, We said those are likely angelic beings representing both Israel and the church. That's possible. But I think the answer is in the latter part of the verse, because then there's a reference to these who are beheaded during the tribulation. And I recognize it's some degree out of order, but look at the end of verse 4. It says, these martyrs out of the tribulation, they come to life and reigned, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I think those are the ones on the thrones. I think there's something uniquely privileged about those that during the tribulation period lose their life for the faith following Jesus, they will have a position of honor during the kingdom age. I think that's what's happening here. But that's not all. It's not just those, because look in verse 6. You skip down there, and it says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Well, who are those who share in the first resurrection? They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. So what you've got is you've got the redeemed people of God. Singled out are the martyrs, and they have a position of privilege. And by the way, there's a life lesson there. You recognize that glory only comes after suffering. Glory only comes after suffering. How much have you really learned from your life of comfort and blessing and fulfillment? On the other hand, how much have you learned through suffering? How much have you learned through trouble, through heartache? 
And here you have these martyrs who receive this incredible, it seems to me, privilege of ruling, of some kind of, of judicial functional responsibility in the kingdom age, and it happens after they experienced incredible suffering. Did you know that there's not one ounce of your suffering that's ever wasted? There's not one ounce in the perfect plan of God. There's not one ounce of your pain and suffering that's ever wasted. But overall, these verses promise that this reign belongs to all of us who share in the first resurrection. And I say us because as I'll show you, we will be there. These are resurrected believers in Jesus during the kingdom age. They are the ones who have been forgiven by Him. They are the ones who are united to Him. The the phrase in the New Testament is, those who are in Christ, we will experience the privilege of the administrative duties of the kingdom of Messiah during this interim age. All of us who share in the first resurrection. Now, there's all kinds of debate, and believe me, you'll thank me for not going into all of the details this morning, but there's all kind of debate about this first resurrection as compared to the second resurrection, which is the resurrection to judgment next week. But let me just show you the stages of the first resurrection, because this is what we find in the New Testament. It's not just all at one moment. For example, first of all, where do you think the first resurrection begins? It begins with Jesus Christ, who is resurrected receives a glorified body that is in some way, it has physical properties, but it is nevertheless glorified and eternal. So he remains fully human, and yet no more decay, no more, no more weakness that is human weakness. And of course, with Jesus, there was never any sin to begin with. But we have this anticipation of resurrection. But the first resurrection begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we know that in 1 Thessalonians 4, there's this promise that when Jesus returns, the believers who have died are resurrected. Their bodies are now in the grave. Their souls are now with Jesus. But what 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us is that they will be resurrected at the time of, that we call the rapture. But that's not all. Because those of us who are alive at the rapture, those of us who are believers in Jesus and we are alive when Jesus comes back to take his people out before the wrath of God falls, we will experience translation into glorified bodies, which functionally will be our resurrection. There's this strange quirk and exception to the promise in Scripture, it is appointed unto men once to die, except those that are alive at the coming of the Lord. We will be resurrected immediately, as it were, And then in chapter 11 of Revelation, we find the two witnesses are murdered or martyred, and they are immediately resurrected. And then we come to chapter 20, and we find that these martyrs and the believing saints that have come out of the tribulation, who lost their lives because they stood against the mark of the beast, they will also be resurrected. Now, do you see what this is teaching? It's teaching that all of this is the first resurrection. It begins with Jesus. It continues on at the rapture with both saints who are dead and those who are alive. It includes the two witnesses from Revelation 11. And then finally in chapter 20, the text says that these believers that have come out of the tribulation, especially the martyrs, they will be resurrected. All of this, it says, is the first resurrection. And all who share in the first resurrection, we have an opportunity to reign 
We have some kind of administrative responsibilities. We have the opportunity to judge and to rule, as it were, along with Jesus during this kingdom age. You say, well, that just sounds too fanciful for me. Well, it's what the Bible teaches. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's on the screen for you. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? When will that happen? Well, it'll begin in the kingdom age. Turn with me. We'll come back to chapter 20. But I want you to look at Revelation 2 and 3. Because you have these promises that are given to the seven churches. I want you to look at them very quickly. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Because the promises here... While they begin as somewhat symbolic in their language and maybe somewhat abstract in our understanding, they become very specific. Let me show you what I mean. We're in Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at the seven churches that originally received this letter. Look with me, for example, look with me in verse 7 to the church at Ephesus. He says in verse 7, this is Jesus speaking to his churches. In verse 7 he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, that's not necessarily clear about the interim kingdom age, right? Well, look at the way that he makes a promise to the church at Smyrna, down in verse 11 of chapter 2. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, if I took time, I'd go back to chapter 20 and show the second death is referred to there in chapter 20. We go down and look at the church at Pergamum. Uh, Look at verse 17 of that second chapter. This is the third church. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, that doesn't help us a whole lot about the kingdom age, right? But look down at the church at Thyatira, verse 26, at the end of chapter 2. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So this category of an overcomer, it, it sounds somewhat esoteric. It sounds a little bit vague for us. It sounds, can I use this word, almost spiritualized. But then it begins to become specific. If you overcome, there will come a time in which Jesus will grant you authority over the nations. Look down in chapter 3, the church at Sardis. It is a more generic or somewhat abstract promise. Although there's this glorious promise, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. But now look the church at Philadelphia. It says in verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Symbolic. And then finally, look in verse 21 of chapter 3, the church at Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me. What are the words? On my throne. The point I'm making is that here at the beginning of Revelation, there's a promise to all of these seven churches that represent the church of Jesus Christ, that those who overcome, those who are faithful, those who are in the gospel, redeemed, there is a promise 
for the kingdom of authority and responsibility and privilege that is astonishing. And so that's affirmed in the book of Revelation chapter 5, if you'll see on the screen, where the vision of the heavenly throne room John writes, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, that is the Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, watch this, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall, what? Reign on the earth. In the coming kingdom, everyone who's ransomed, somehow, will have this honor and privilege of ruling and reigning with Jesus. Now, if I haven't lost all of you, and if you're a skeptic, some of you are thinking, rule and reign over who? Who, who, who are the nations? Who's going to be on earth during this kingdom age? Where do they come from? And the answer to that, based on the way Revelation rolls out, is these are mortals that enter the kingdom age and have children. These are the generations, the nations during the kingdom age are those that are the human mortals, not resurrected saints, but the human mortals who have entered the kingdom age. I I think perhaps in God's wide mercy, there may even be unbelieving survivors. Many scholars disagree with me on that. But it's possible that God in His mercy doesn't kill every single unbeliever at the beginning of the kingdom age. So it's possible that those in the nations who have not yet submitted to Jesus nevertheless enter this glorious kingdom, and in God's mercy they have an opportunity to trust the Messiah. But also what is clear is that the sealed people of Israel who survive the tribulation period, the time of great wrath, they enter the kingdom as mortals, and they have children, and this is the nation of Israel. So there are other nations. There's the nation of Israel. These are all mortals, and they enter this ideal age. It's not a perfect age yet, remember. And what will happen, because the effects of the curse are mitigated and lifted, there will undoubtedly be astonishing population growth. Because you won't deal with death the way we deal with death. You won't deal with disease the way we deal with disease. There won't be murders. There won't be wars. A thousand years. The growth will be astonishing. And every person, mortal, who lives in the kingdom will have a responsibility and an opportunity to yield and trust Jesus as Messiah who lived and died and was resurrected on their behalf, or they will remain in rebellion. And more on that next week as we finish chapter 20. This is the reason that the Bible uses this dual language of both being a tender shepherd. We read about it this morning in Isaiah 40, that he will be a tender shepherd, but also he will rule, and the word in chapter 19 is shepherd them. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron. Because some people will be eagerly ruled, but there will still be sin in the mortals that live in the kingdom, and they will be ruled over with a rod of iron because Jesus will be here in person. And we have the opportunity, those of us who are redeemed, to assist him, the great privilege of serving him in ruling over his kingdom. One more thing. What about believing Israel? Who is Israel in this time? Well, it clearly 
are the ethnic Jews who have trusted a Messiah who survive the horrors of the tribulation. That's the nation of Israel. But have you thought about this? Evidently, from what we see about the resurrection, Abraham will be there. And Sarah will be there. And evidently, Moses will be there. And almost surely, King David will be there. All of these who received the promises but never experienced them during the kingdom age, they will see the full promises of Messiah to his people Israel fulfilled, not just in what we call the Holy Land, but the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth. Promises fulfilled. Now, for any of this to make sense, we need to drill down on what's really happening spiritually in this broken world. Because for any of this to make sense, there is implied an assurance of several truths. And with this, I'll give my attention and then we'll be through this morning. The first is this. All of this implies the assurance because the redeemed of God, you and me, along with the saints of old, along with the tribulation martyrs, all of us will share in the privilege of serving during the kingdom age. This implies the assurance, first of all, of the forgiveness of sin. For any of that to happen, our sin has to be dealt with. All of this ruling and this reigning and this serving, we all have a privilege in it, but none of us are worthy None of us have earned that right. You recognize that every single person honored with a role of service in the future kingdom, every single person started as a sinner. Every single person was born into rebellion, guilty the way they're born, but then freely chose to pursue that guilt. And therefore, every single person is guilty before a holy God and can only be redeemed by some transaction which credits righteousness to them and covers and removes their guilt. And this is what happens in the gospel. We are forgiven of our sins. And so every single person that rules and reigns with Jesus in the kingdom is a person who's experienced the forgiveness of sin. Sinners all. That's what this means. And let me tell you what this means for us. What this means for us is there's this astonishing wonder and glory of black-hearted rebels like you and me being given God's grace and forgiveness. It wasn't that you were better than other people and God said, they look like they're pretty good, I'll save them. As we celebrated Danny's life yesterday, the tributes to him were stunning in his relational This guy was a rock star, relationally. That didn't get him into heaven. He could have been the most faithful, thoughtful, loving person on the face of the earth, and if he had never humbled his heart before the God of heaven and received the gift of forgiveness, he would be in hell right now. And the same will be true of you. 
we need to experience the forgiveness of our sins. And sometimes our sins are drastic and shameful, but sometimes our sins are proud and honorable and look wonderful to other people, but it's our own righteousness that we exalt, in which we exalt ourselves against the God of heaven. For any of this to make sense, it implies, first of all, the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Second, for any of this to make sense, it implies the assurance not only of the forgiveness of sin, but also of the resurrection over death. The whole point of this is that all these people are resurrected. The souls of the martyrs, they're resurrected. The overcomers from the churches in the first two cha- three chapters of Revelation, they're resurrected. You catch that, right? The first people who read John's words were promised that they would be overcomers and they would rule in the kingdom. For that to happen, they will have to be resurrected. For you and I to experience it, we will need to experience resurrection. For my dad, for my, or my mom to experience it, who's now in heaven in her, in her soul, in her spirit, she needs her body resurrected so that she can experience this as well. It's resurrection from the dead is implied in all of this. That's what this means. Resurrection into real glorified bodies. Bodies that are not imaginary. They are not like Casper the friendly ghost. They are somehow, they have somehow, they have physical properties like Jesus' resurrected body, but they will never grow old. They will never die. So they are glorified, but they nevertheless have some kind of physical existence just like Jesus now does in heaven as he remains our brother. This is the emphasis in the resurrection. We don't understand it all. I don't understand how a body can be eternal and yet still have physical properties. It's not my problem. That's the creator's issue. And what he has promised to do is to resurrect us from the dead and give us a body like the body of the resurrected Jesus. That's what this means. So our loved ones right now, none of our loved ones are resurrected yet. And by the way, none of them are angels either. I just want to say that. When you die, you don't become an angel. But their spirits are in the presence of our God, and He promises one day to miraculously resurrect their bodies. You say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How can, how can the, you know, the bodies likely all decayed? And, and what about those that are lost at sea? And what about, once again, you're getting into God's area here. This is what He promises to do, to resurrect our bodies, to reform them into glorified bodies that have some level of physical property, but will be eternal. And that is the guarantee. That's what has to happen for this to be real. And you know what that means for us today? It means that our bodies matter. There's not some kind of odd, weird dualism where where we hate the things of the physical world because we're so spiritual. Sometimes it's been said in Christian theology even, it's been said that the body is a prison of the soul. Not so. We are created, embodied people. Jesus himself, in his incarnation, was an embodied person. Completely divine, but also completely human. And, and linked to get those, 
the, the mystery of his nature is linked together in a human body. And this gives value. It, it, it means that it matters when we're sick. It means that life matters from conception to the grave. It means we should give attention to this physical world. We shouldn't act as though none of it matters. And while we don't have to become some kind of radicals in the sense that of treating either the animal kingdom or treating nature as more important than people because undoubtedly it is not more important than people. Nevertheless, the entire physical creation has value to its creator. And for Christians to deny that, to act as though we are so heavenly minded we care nothing about the physical world or the physical realm, denies the fundamental teaching of Scripture. That God sees us not as necessarily trichotomous or even dichotomous. He sees us as a, as a whole. We are embodied people and our bodies, our physical bodies will die, but one day they will be resurrected and we will be joined with them, our bodies again, in a glorious resurrection. There's value of the body. And somehow... I can't explain it, but somehow when the kingdom age morphs into the eternal age, we will have resurrected bodies that will live eternally with Jesus. And no more wheelchairs, Pat. And no more cancer visits. And no more COVIDs. And that shows the grace and the kindness of God who is the creator, don't dismiss the wonder that he has created a world to be enjoyed, to be appreciated, to be valued, even our physical bodies. All of this implies the assurance of the forgiveness of sin and also the resurrection over the death. And then finally, it assures us the union with Christ, our union with Christ. You see it in verse 6? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. What do we share? Who, who do we share it with? Well, we share it with Jesus. He was resurrected, will be resurrected. Over such, the second death has no power, but they, including us, in other words, we will be priests of God and of Christ, and we will reign with Him for a thousand years. Priests. The idea of priesthood... We won't necessarily be interceding for sinful people. The idea of priesthood mainly here has the idea of access. We have access to God. We will have access to Jesus. In our service, this service during the kingdom age, it won't be tainted with sinfulness. It won't be tainted with self. It won't be tainted with the flesh. And in this kingdom age, we will experience this full union and intimacy with the Savior. I don't know how that will work with so many of us, but I know that the implication is, haven't you sometimes envied the disciples who just walked and talked with Jesus, who sat around the campfire, who shared a meal with Him? This is the kingdom promise. We will be with Him. Those of us who are in Him. That's what this means. And what stunning joy this will be. Because if Jesus came to lunch with me this afternoon, in the back of my mind would be all of the things that I did this week that were a stunning disappointment to him. 
But I want to tell you the promise of the kingdom age is that sinful flesh will be gone. I will be in a glorified body and my fellowship with the Savior will be full and unhindered. That's what this means. So what it means for us today is that positionally, positionally, this is already true. I know we struggle with our flesh. That's what the whole rest of the New Testament is about. This sinfulness that we, that we battle. And it is a warfare. But positionally, we are in Christ. You say, well, what does it mean to be in Christ? It means everything opposite from being outside of Christ. We are in Christ. In a few weeks, we'll be talking about Christmas. Remember the Christmas promise? Emmanuel means what? God with us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. The New Testament says we are accepted now. Presently, we are accepted in the Beloved. In other words, in Christ, the Beloved. In Him, we are accepted. So even though the reality of our flesh struggle is still very real, there's a truth in which, there's a sense in which this truth can encourage us even today. We are one with Jesus even now. How glorious that is. The forgiveness of sin, resurrection over death, union with Christ. Now at the end of the day, we all wish we knew more. We all wish the details of this were clearer. I hope you have questions. I hope what we've worked through this morning prompts questions about what will that be like? And you are always free to come to me and ask questions and anticipate me saying, I have no idea. Because generally speaking, the details are not made clear. And so some skeptics say this. By the way, I'm finishing. All right, hold on. Some skeptics say this. They say, you know, if this is so glorious, if the kingdom age is so astonishing, why isn't there more information about it? You're looking forward to it. You think it's the culmination of history. It will transition into the eternal age. Why don't we know more about it? Why, why are there so many in Revelation, for example, there are so many gruesome visions and so much bloodshed and so much wrath of God and so much terror. And why does God give us so much of that and so little about the glories of the kingdom. And let me answer that very simply. I do know the answer for that. It's because God is a God of mercy and grace, and it's important that He warns us of judgment to come. The burden of Scripture is wake up. Recognize your guilt. Find forgiveness in Jesus. This is what it will look like if you refuse this is what it looks like if you are comfortable in Babylon. This is what it looks like if you choose to live according to the world system. It's a warning. It's a gracious warning of the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ. And I try every Sunday morning to be encouraging to you, but part of that encouragement always has to have a tenor of it, of warning because God is not only loving in His love, He is also holy and just. 
Author Robert Louis Stevenson was told of the death of a noted skeptic in 18th century England. And he was heard to say, that's too bad, he won't like God. This is serious. And so it is. I couldn't help but think as I looked at this message in this text this week, that there's a sense in which our celebrations are summarized in these truths. Forgiveness, it comes through the cross. That's Good Friday. Resurrection comes on Easter morning, doesn't it? In union with Christ, where do we find that truth begin? Emmanuel, God is with us. That's Christmas. So this is a Good Friday sermon. It's an Easter sermon. It's also a Christmas sermon. Because we have forgiveness and we will experience resurrection. And we already experience union with Christ. You know the application for this today and your takeaway? It's simply this. Know this. All best things will be made better. We have forgiveness now. We have the promise of resurrection and the value of the body. We have that now. We have union with Christ now. But in the kingdom age, those things will be exponentially, infinitely extrapolated into glory. The forgiveness, we will see the forgiveness for all it is. We will experience our resurrection bodies, and we will have unhindered union with Jesus. And everything that comes along with it, all best things, will be made better. So, earth, receive your king. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray together. Father, We don't profess to know all of these mysteries. You have been pleased to hide them, many of them. And good brothers and sisters would even interpret some details differently. We rejoice that all recognize that the King is coming. that the king will return and all the best things now will be made even better. But Father, we know that's only true for people who have experienced the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus Christ. It holds no promise to good moral people who are trusting their own efforts. So do your mysterious and powerful work through the Holy Spirit and speak to hearts today. Encourage those who are discouraged. Rebuke those of us who are in rebellion, who are hiding sins, even though we may be redeemed, but we aren't pursuing holiness. And Father, for any who are under the sound of my words, who have never repented and trusted Jesus as Savior, may they recognize today that these glorious, glorious promises have nothing to do with them that all they can anticipate are the terrors that we've seen through the book of Revelation. 
And I'd ask that you'd move in their hearts and give them gifts today of faith and repentance. All these things represent a wondrous mystery. Yet we worship you in it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.